Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today I welcome Marcus Buckingham to the show. Marcus, welcome. I couldn't be more delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you. Lovely to be here, Caroline. We're going to be talking about your new book, and I have to tell you, I am really jazzed about this book. I was telling you before we joined the show that I've been following your work for years, but this book is very provocative in a good way. It's disrupting how we think about the world of work, and I'm going to give a spoiler alert. The title is Nine Lies About Work, A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real Word real world. So lie is a very strong word, Marcus. It's even loaded. Why did you choose to to just start out of the gate with that word lie? And how did how did this book evolve? Well, we're at an interesting time at the moment where if you look at per-person productivity around the world, for the last 40, 50 years, it, it barely budged at all. It's an anemic growth, which given the amount of technology and process improvements and so forth that we've thrown at it is is really surprising. Um, global engagement. I, I run the ADP Research Institute now, and we've just finished this 19-country study of global engagement. And around the world, that number hovers around 14, 15% of people fully engaged at work. So we're looking at a time right now where clearly per-person productivity isn't moving, engagement isn't high, and we're about to take a lot of our core assumptions about work and build them into AI, uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning, and and accelerate our core assumptions about how people should get work done at work. And yet, if you look at the productivity data, if you look at the engagement data, clearly our assumptions are not leading to the outcomes that we want. Something is wrong. Something is wrong in terms of performance. Something's wrong in terms of engagement. And before we turn all of these assumptions into algorithms and speed everything up and deploy it at scale on apps on all our phones that relate to our goals, our talent, our engagement, and so forth, before we do that, uh, the point of the book was to say, let's examine those assumptions way more carefully because at the moment, they're not working for us. And we pick lies because... You could, I mean, you could have done misunderstandings. We could have said myths, misconceptions, but we went with lies because lies are pushed at you for a reason. And when you look carefully at each of these lies, you realize that somebody actually is pushing them at you. There is an agenda under here. Um, and so in order to free us from that agenda, which we can talk about later if you like, but in order to free us from that agenda, we need to call these lies for what they are. Um, and if we don't, and if we continue the way we're going, we're going to continue to see historically low levels of purpose and productivity and engagement. And that for every one of us will be a shame. You know, those engagement numbers are really staggering. And I truly appreciate that all of your work is is deeply rooted in data. So help us understand the data behind Nine Lies About Work and how that really opens up some truths, frankly, and some strategies about how we can become engaged and how leaders can lead the engagement revolution and organizations can become more aware. Yeah, well, the first lie is that uh, people care which company they work for. So to look at the data on that, with every one of these lies, we chose to start with what's knowable, not what's theoretical, but what's knowable in the real world. And so we started with the first one, um, people care which company they work for. Uh, these days, of course, 
if a company, if a CEO is not talking about the kind of company culture they're trying to build, then supposedly they're missing the boat. Every company seems to have a, a focus on uh, a culture of uh, accountability or a culture of customer centricity or a culture of in- innovation. And uh, we read the, the Fortune Best Companies to work for this as though there is such a thing as a company culture and all of us who work for that company should feel it and live in accordance with it. Um, so Tesla's culture is different than Goldman Sachs' culture is different than um, in Nordstrom's culture. Uh, and yet when you when you actually go in and start measuring things, by which I mean you go into a company and actually just ask questions. You ask questions of individuals about their experience at work. If this thing called company culture existed, then we should find two things. One, we should find experiences at work within one company that are uniform. It doesn't really matter which organization or which department or which part of the company you're in. If, if there really is a company culture at Goldman Sachs, just to pick one, uh, then it doesn't really matter where we ask these questions of people in terms of their experience at work. They should be a uniform set of answers. Second, when we look at the difference between, say, working at Goldman Sachs versus working at, say, Patagonia, um, we should see a very clear measurable difference between the experience of work, the uniform experience of work at Goldman Sachs, and the uniform experience of work at Patagonia. And yet when we do that, when we go ask these questions, um, we don't find either one of those things. There's no uniform experience at working at any company, and there's no difference between working for one company than another in terms of people's lived experience. Instead, what you find is variation you find measured variation. If you ask people really simple questions like, do you know what's expected of you at work? Do you feel you'll be uh, rewarded for excellent work? Do you feel like someone has your back? I mean, just very simple questions. You find there's far more variation, Caroline, inside a company than between companies. And so when you push on the data, you realize this thing called culture is made up. We can't find it. There is no uniform experience. So when you push on through that, you realize that, that we push the idea of culture because companies have one stock price and we want to drive the stock price and we want people to, to fall in line. And so culture is put out there as something that coerces all of us to behave in a certain way. But it's not real. It turns out when you really push on the data, people care which company they join. But once they join, what they really care about is which team they're on. What they care about in terms of voluntary turnover, do they leave? When they leave something, they're leaving a team, not the company. So if you wanted to build a better company, what all of us should be doing is thinking really carefully about how do we build more teams like our best teams? The team, not culture, the team is the most important unit of analysis to understand what people's experience at work is actually like. One of the reasons why productivity and engagement are so low is that we don't focus on teams. We miss where the work is. You know, that's such an eye-opener, especially for those listening who are looking for a new opportunity or an advancement opportunity. And I hear you loud and clearly that a company's culture isn't really a reliable barometer, and it makes absolute sense to think about the team. So I'm putting myself in the head of those out there thinking, okay, how do I seek that out in an interview process? How do I, as a well-informed candidate, find out about that team? Any thoughts about that? Well, the first thing to avoid is the classic interview question is, tell me about your company culture. Uh, You're going to hear a whole lot of word salad that doesn't actually match up to the experience that you have when you join the 
when you, when you join the company. The most important question really to ask about in terms of teams would be number one, can you tell me what this company does to build more teams like its best teams? Like that's super interesting. If the company has never even begun to think about it, you're going to get a rotten set of answers and that should be an alert for you. This company doesn't understand that your quality of your productivity, your quality of your customer focus, your quality of your innovation, all of it flows through the team or teams, by the way, it's plural. 65% of people say they're on more than one team. Um, and that 75% of those people say that that team or teams are not reflected on the org chart, which by the way, parenthetically means that if you take even a, a really good company like Google, here's a set of things that Google does not know. It does not know how many teams it has. Google does not know who's on those teams. It does not know um, who the team leaders are of those teams. It does not know how to build more teams like its best teams. So even a, a really good company like Google doesn't actually know where its work is. So if you're an interviewee, ask about what the company does to understand its best teams. And then I would push, if I possibly could, to have a chance to interview with the other team members. Ask them what the experience of the actual team is like, not the company. Ask about the local environment and try and get as many interviews as you can with the people who are actually on the team you're going to be working on. That's vital. I love that because it really empowers the candidate, the person going through the interview process, to take the power and interview the uh, prospective colleagues, right? And I think sometimes it's often perceived in the opposite way that you are being grilled and interviewed and questioned and probed. But if you're the candidate, it's important for you to be responsible and drill down and ask those questions. Well, particularly Great. now because you've got you've – got, um you've got employment levels, unemployment about 3.6, 3.7%, and in some industries even lower than that. So the, the power right now really is on the with the interviewee. And so it without you don't have to be a jerk about it, but it, it is a responsible thing to do to be saying to the company you're joining, would it be possible for me to talk with some of the people on the actual team I'm going to be working on? Um, and these days you, you do have that power and it's um, – it, it's a very important piece of information gathering before you choose which quote-unquote company you're going to work for. Marcus, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to learn more about. We want this podcast to serve you in all of your career and life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. So Marcus, the next lie in the book is lie number four, the best people are well-rounded. And I'm really excited to open up a juicy conversation about this because I know you are a strengths expert. And I'd love for you to help our global audience understand why the best people are well-rounded is truly a lie. Yeah. Well, first of all, where we encounter it is we, we've built our companies as though they are simply modern versions of the assembly line. So if you look at the way we design software, if you look at the way we do healthcare, we've created a set of processes. And we think of ourselves in terms of company building as a, a series of processes that come together to produce a product or an experience. And we then as individuals, we are kind of replaceable parts 
in that process. Um, in which case, of course, the most efficient way to think about people supposedly is if, wouldn't it be great if everybody in each of the jobs that are part of the process did the job in exactly the same way? And what that, how that manifests itself is if you think about like an emergency room nurse, we say, look, you know, we've got 10 emergency room nurses here. Here is the list of competencies that every single nurse should have. Here is the list of attributes that he or she should have. Then any incumbent in that job, we will measure you against those attributes. We will pinpoint your gaps against the model. And then we will tell you to go get better at the competencies that you lack. This is one of the most defining features of work today. You're measured against a model, a list of attributes or competencies, and you're told to plug the gaps. Um, and yet, when you look at the best emergency room nurses, if you've got a list of 10 of them and studied how they do what they do, although they all know a series of um, steps, for example, to give a painless injection, uh, and so there are some things that they do in terms of steps or in terms of facts that are the same, when it comes to how they actually give care, they do it very, very differently. 10 emergency room nurses are 10 individuals who happen to be really good in the ER, but they're not homogenous. They're not the same as one another. They're driven by different things. They build relationships in different ways. They think about things differently. When you study excellence in the world, you don't find well-roundedness. You find idiosyncrasy. When you look at average in the world, you find sameness and well-roundedness. The average golfer, let's say, all looks the same. They're all holding the club with a handle. They're all swinging the club back and forward to move the ball. But you look at the best golfers in the world, and they all seem to have a really, really different swing, different approach, different mentality. The same is true for the best um, salespeople. The very best salespeople do not all sell in the same way. It's like wherever we look at excellence in the world, we find idiosyncrasy and uniqueness. So the best people aren't well-rounded. Average people are well-rounded. The best people are spiky. They have unique strengths. And what they've realized is that they will be most valuable. They will stand out the most if they can figure out what those unique strengths are, whatever role they happen to be in, figure out what those unique strengths are, and then cultivate those strengths and contribute those strengths intelligently. So for your listeners, it's really, do you know what your unique strengths are and have you figured out how to contribute them to the team you're on? And of course, to go back to the first slide, the beautiful thing about teams, the point of teams, why we came up with teams 50,000 years ago is because we realized that human beings are not the same. And that the team is the best mechanism we could come up with for getting something done together that none of us individually could do alone. Because we've missed teams in companies, we've therefore missed the power of uniqueness. Um, and for us moving forward, uh, that's why we thought this book was so important to write now. We've got to make teams and uniqueness, those two things, the building blocks for a truly successful experience at work. I'm in I'm in full agreement. And I, I have to tell you, this gets me so uh, excited because I hear so many people as a career coach and they're frustrated because their boss or their supervisor or their colleagues are constantly pushing them to improve their weakness. And I truly mean that I believe that they're in the wrong role because they're not empowered to play to their strengths. 
and I, I think you're in agreement as well, but I want to dovetail on that. I believe that feedback and constructive criticism are fundamentally flawed because we focus on how people should be improving versus how they should be sharpening and polishing those strengths. So take it deeper because I know you talk about this in the book. Well, line number five is that people need feedback. And again, for your listeners, if if the company that they work for is not pushing some sort of feedback app at them, then wait a couple of months because appearing on a phone near you very soon will be an app or series of apps that enables you to get and give feedback on anyone at any time on anything. And that data on you delivered through 360s perhaps or through some ongoing feedback app will then be kept on you. That data will be kept on you forever. That's the world we're moving into. Constant, ongoing, repeated, supposedly data-based feedback. And all of it is based on a lie. The lie is that people will grow and develop most in response to feedback on what's not working. And that other people are the source for what isn't working because they're the source of truth about who you are and what's wrong about you and what's not working about you. Because if I didn't tell you what's wrong and not working about you, you would never know. You can't, quote unquote, see your blind spots. Now, there's a couple of really powerfully wrong things. And I don't mean wrong in terms of I believe them to be wrong, just wrong in terms of when you study the real world, we can't find these things. The first is that we know human beings grow. We grow more synapses in the areas of our brain that have the most pre-existing synapses. We know that. We can see that, measure that, which means that people's um, unique strengths are the areas where they will grow the most, which in turn means that the raw material for your future greatness is your current goodness. We know that that. Therefore, giving you feedback on all the areas of your brain, if you like, where you don't have that many synapses, is that is not going to be the raw material for helping you to excel. The place where you're going to excel are those places where you're already showing some signs of effectiveness. So first of all, if I want to help you grow, I've got to help you seek what's currently working. I've got to pay attention to where in your world right now things are going well. Not to pat you on the head and say, good job. We tend to think the good job is the end of a conversation. Hey, Caroline, good job. But actually, the best managers and team leaders understand that good job is the beginning of a conversation. When I say good job, I'm not saying it to celebrate you or even congratulate you. I'm saying it to interrogate you. Good job, Caroline. What worked there? Why did it work? What did you lean into? What did you see? What did you feel? The, The best team leaders are pushing always on what worked. Why? Because that's the raw material for future greatness. Now... That doesn't mean that if you're making a mistake with a fact or a step, I shouldn't point it out. I should. If you are, let's say, going back to the emergency room nurse, if you are giving the wrong patient the wrong dosage, that's a factual error, and I should tell you. If you're not following the right steps for giving a painless injection, then I should tell you, you missed step two. That's why we have checklists in ORs. So so yes, facts and steps by all means, tell someone what they're doing wrong. But if you do that, you don't get anyone to excellence. That gets someone to zero, to not failing. So that's fine if you want to do that. But if you want to get someone to excel, you've got to pay attention to what's working. And when you do that, you're not actually giving them feedback. The most valuable thing you can give them is 
and, and this is valuable because it's true, is your reaction. We need to push on that word reaction versus feedback. Because when we, when we talk about feedback, it's really me telling you what to do, me giving you advice, me saying you should do this. In a sense, if you really pause it, it's you would be better, Caroline, if only you were more like me. I'm reaching over the divide, if you like, and telling you, reaching into your psyche and saying, do this. In fact, I, I'm, I am not a source of truth about who you are. I'm not a source of truth about what you should do differently. I'm a source of truth of one thing only. I'm a source of truth of my own experience. So what I can reliably share with you, if, if you, I want to help you grow, what I should reliably share with you is my own reaction. I can share with you that when you said that, 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 that thing there, I didn't understand what you were saying. I can share like my lack of understanding. I can share that I got bored when you wrote that email. I can share with you, just like when a doctor comes in after a, conducting an operation and walks into the room, the person that he asks to rate the pain of the patient is not the other doctors in the room, is not the nurses. He or she asks the patient. The patient is the source of truth about their own pain. Just like I'm the source of truth about my own reactions to the world. So if I wanted to help you grow, what I should give you are my reactions to things because they're unimpeachable. And I should particularly give you my reactions to things that are working because that's the raw material for your future greatness. I love that. That is so crystal clear. Thank you. Thank you for that clarity. You know, Marcus, I see an interesting time in our workplace in that it's it's multi-generational and our millennial and Generation Z workers are, are the succession plan for future leaders. Some of them are taking on leadership roles now, and some of them will be in the few years. And they really place a priority on, on work-life balance. You have a different take on that. So let us into that. Well, again, the subtitle of the book is A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. We are told to strive for work-life balance as if work is the opposite end of the continuum from life somehow, that there's life and then there's work. And yet if you push on that even a little bit and you say, well, really, our, our, our measure of success, our aspiration should be work-life balance between those two categories. If you even ever found that point of balance between work and life, if one day on Thursday morning you woke up and you say, gosh, my kids are happy, my spouse is happy, my parents seem happy, the work is going well, my, my, my bank balance looks good. If, if you ever got that moment of perfect balance, what would be running through your head is nobody move. Nobody move. Just I've, I've got everything perfectly balanced. Just, right. just hold your breath. Hold, everyone yeah. stop. Um, balance, when you look at, it is stasis. Balance is stationary. Nothing healthy in nature is in balance. I'm going to say that again. Nothing healthy in nature is in balance. We used to think so when we were, you know, 10 years, 1,000 years ago, we'd look up the stars and it looked as though they were just hanging there perfectly in balance. We now know, though, that the only reason we got confused about that was that we were just judging the stars by the very short 60-year lifespans that we had. If you take a proper understanding of time, the stars aren't in balance. Nothing is in balance. Everything in nature that's healthy is moving. Healthy is motion. So you don't, you don't ever tell someone to find work-life balance. Instead, you say to someone, how can you move through life in such a way that you draw strength from it? And, and when I say move through life, work is a part of life. 
Now, the beautiful thing about each one of us is that we are unique and therefore we derive strength. We derive satisfaction. We lean in to very different sets of activities and situations and contexts and people, whether those contexts be at work or whether they be at home. Um, the, the world that we live in is, I mean, it's kind of a beautiful thing. It is set up to draw strength from. The weird thing is, is we, we don't actually teach our children how to do this. We don't really teach them how to draw strength from being a student, but draw strength from being a friend. And yet every one of us does seem to lean into very different patterns of context and situations and people. So the really the, the, the most powerful aspiration isn't a work-life balance. It's how do you find, and what we called in the book, love in work. We call them red threads. There are certain activities at work, certain situations and contexts that you draw strength from. These are your red threads. And although the fabric of your work and the fabric of your life is made up of many different colored threads, some of them are red. Some of them draw strength into you. You are strengthened by them. When you're doing them, time flies by. You're in flow. When you're done with them, you kind of want to do them again. Before you do them, you kind of look forward to doing them. Every single person in a, in, a, in a job has certain activities like that. And the recent research by the Mayo Clinic shows us that, that if, if doctors have 20%, only 20% of their life at work is red threads, 20% of their life doing what they love, doing things that they love, then each percentage point below that 19, 18, 17, you see a commensurate one percentage point increase in burnout risk. And so what that shows us is that you don't need to have a job in which you love every single activity within it. You just need to find 20% of your job as red threads. When you do that, your whole experience of work is different and better. And certainly from the data that we see anyway, if you ask people, do you have the freedom to modify your job to fit your strengths better? 73% of people in the U.S. agree or strongly agree that they do. So although 27% of us are perhaps in the wrong job, you've got 73% of us who say, yes, I have the freedom to find these red threads and weave them into my work and life. And yet, unfortunately, less than 20% of us do. So we've, we've got the wrong aspiration. It, it, it's not work-life balance. And we've got the categories wrong. They're not work and life that should be balanced. The categories instead should be love and loathe. And what we should all be striving for is a deliberate imbalance. Imbalance our lives at work toward love and away from loathe. And this isn't pie in the sky. This isn't theoretical mumbo jumbo where someone's saying, you know, find a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life again. No, it's more specific, much more specific than that, going, there are certain activities or situations or contexts that you love. Figure out what those are and then deliberately imbalance your work toward those, at least so that you are consciously weaving. 20% of your work fabric with red threads. Boy, if you do that, you are more productive, more engaged, and far less likely to burn out. Well, your energy is palpable. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that message. So Marcus, as we, as we wrap up, the subtitle of your book is A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. So help, help us understand your definition of free thinkers and how do you recognize a free-thinking leader? And, and maybe you can give us an example to illustrate that. 
Well, yeah. First of all, I would say if if anyone wants to join this community of free thinking leaders, we've set up something with the publisher Harvard Business Review called the Free Thinking Leaders Coalition. So if you go to freethinkingleader.org, you'll find a whole bunch of people like you engaging with each of these lies one by one by one by one. We wrote this book to try to make change in the world, not really to, to, to get ideas in book form. We wanted to get ideas out in the real world because, frankly, there is so much of what we are institutionalizing at work that is harmful to human beings. Um, so if, if you want to think of yourself, are, are you a free-thinking leader? Um, the, the two biggest clues would be, first of all, do you focus on individuals? The best leaders in the world don't generalize. They talk about specific individuals. They realize that the uniqueness is a feature that we need to maximize, not a bug to be fixed. Human uniqueness. If you get 10 salespeople, you don't have 10 salespeople. You have 10 individuals who happen to be selling. The same way with any occupation. If you want to be a free-thinking leader, you will begin by realizing that humans are messy and that that mess, that uniqueness, is worth engaging with. And then the second most obvious sign of a free-thinking leader is data fluency. So much of what we are forced to live within at work is bad data. Goal attainment is bad data. Performance ratings are bad data. Ratings on your leadership competencies, bad data. And by bad data, I simply mean it is not measuring what we say it's measuring. It's all fake. It's all false, which leads to false prescription and false action. So the best leaders in the world, the free-thinking leaders, are the ones who start with what is true and measurable. When we talk about culture, can we measure it? When we talk about leadership, can we measure it? How about this one? Potential. When we say someone's a hypo, what does that mean? Can we measure potential? Is there really such a thing as potential that, that enables you to, regardless of the job or the situation or the context you're in, somehow it turbocharges you and you're a hypo and I don't have that special substance and I'm a lopo? Does that exist? No, it doesn't. We can't measure it. So the best free-thinking leaders are a critical thinkers in terms of what does the data actually tell us about the real world? Um, those two characteristics are probably the most defining of all the characteristics. Marcus, what a joy to have you on the show. I learned so much from you, and I'm eager to tell our global listening audience about your book, which was co-authored by Ashley Goodall. It's called Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world. And of course, it's available on Amazon and at all major book retailers. And I hope you will all check it out. Marcus, thank you. My pleasure, Callie. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps new people find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like to hear on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And I want to give a special shout out to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for the extraordinary work you do to make this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh.